Welcome to The Curious Culture. My name is Nick Haralambis and I am your obsessively curious host. And in season two, we are discussing why people start things. If you like this show, please like, subscribe and share anywhere and everywhere. That will help us grow this incredibly curious community. For now, enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the next episode of The Curious Culture. We're at season two and we're talking about starting things. And I am very lucky to be talking to Tash Ishmael. I don't know if you double barrel your surname all the time. Depends if he's in the room. <laughs> Lovely. Okay. So thank you for giving me your time. I'm really excited about this conversation. I don't think I've spoken to anyone with your vast background and extremely important job that you do right now. So why don't you tell my listeners who you are and why they should be listening to you? My name's Tash. I'm really interested in addressing inequality. Inequality bothers me. And so in my work, I've strived to try to build models, start things, uh, grow things that would impact on inequality. Uh, we, have a, we have a fascinating but incredibly unfair country that I was born into. You can't help but be struck every corner you stop at um, just how unfair and unequal things are. The, the line I always talk to is in South Africa, where you're born matters. It matters a lot. If you're born on one side of the fence, which most people are, your health outcomes, your education outcomes, your access to opportunities, everything is stunted. And the likelihood that you're born on the wrong side of the fence is, is, is high. And so my work is always to try to understand and investigate who I can partner with, what teams I can build and what spaces I can go into to try to democratize that access to some degree. And how do we use, I'm a big fan of two types of models. One is a Robin Hood model and the other is a platform model, both of which work well together. Um, and this idea of working with the people who have the IP, have the, um, the resources and the skills and hopefully can build the empathy that they can work together on platforms to address some of this. And I would say that's a good summary of what drives me and the types of work that I've involved myself in. Um, my, my very first piece of work was as a dentist. I'm now the CEO of the Youth Employment Service. And uh, that's my career has, 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 has spanned quite a wide range of areas to get to where I am today. Yeah, that's incredibly interesting. And, you know, that's exactly why I, I asked my guests to introduce themselves, because there is no way I would have introduced you with that level of depth and nuance to tee up a really interesting conversation. So, I mean, I'd be remiss to not ask the obvious question that I'm sure my, my listeners are wondering is, how on earth did you go from what you call your first foray into work as a dentist, which took you long to get there, to being the CEO of the Youth Unemployment Service. Services. Thank you. Yes. I keep have yes in my head. That's, and I couldn't get the end of the acronym. So I, I'm curious, the very first question I want to ask is, can you remember the first really difficult thing you started and set your mind to what was that and what was it like? So I'll start with the first part of your question on how I found myself in dentistry, which was my, my yeah. first, my first career, uh, um, stepping stone. 
I have two two words to answer that. Indian mother. Uh, I knew you were going to say that because I have Greek parents. So, <laughs> so you know, I at school I was curious. Um, I remember the the Vitz career lady coming to my school. I went to a tiny convent school uh, in Parktown, and there was an amazing woman who came out from Vitz to to help us decide what we wanted to do. And she said, you know, university is not for everyone. Till today, that sticks in my mind, doing this work at, at YES. Uh, the, the, the Swiss ambassador had said to me, you know, 70% of the Swiss do not go to university. We go into vocational training. Wow. <laughs> and, and they have one of the highest GDP per capita in the world. And I remember many, many years ago, that's a career counselor from VIT saying the same thing, that there are beautiful career pathways that don't necessarily go to university. But she asked us a question and we had to put up our hands. You know, in those days we had Encyclopedia Britannica, if you were lucky enough, and your parents got you Childcraft for primary if, school. If, you got... if you're too young to know what those are and you're listening to the show, they are book versions of Wikipedia. Yes, and you find them in antique <laughs> shops today. Beautiful, hardbound <laughs> volumes with lots of detailed information. And I, I remember if we had a project to research and I'd be flipping, I'd keep stopping it to read about some king or some artist because they had little illustrations also. And she said, who reads the encyclopedia for fun? And it was an embarrassing thing to admit. Um, and it was, well, you know, sometimes I stop along the way. And she said the universities for people who are really curious about academic knowledge in that way. And uh, I liked learning. I really enjoyed learning. I, I couldn't say to you I loved biology more than English or English more than biology. And so when my mom, you, you know, blackmailed me into putting dentistry down as my first choice, she wouldn't allow me to go to UCT or, or do the application for UCT unless I put dentistry down as my first choice for VITS wow. because it was a good choice for a woman. Uh, and my dad was that a last part's the key. Good choice for a woman. Good choice yeah. for a woman. And uh, <laughs> my dad's a doctor, and she said, "Not medicine. It's too intense. Dentistry is a lovely job. You know, it's an eight to five job." Little did she know. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so so I put it down. You know, thinking I'd never get in. They took forty five people into dental school, and uh, I was all revved up to go to UCT and do a law degree, which I felt suited my interests a little bit better. And lo and behold, I got in for it. But, um, you know, I took the opportunity because it looked like I would break her heart if I didn't. I got this, this come here, my darling, with these wide open arms when we got the phone call. I was like, uh, how am I going to break the news? So I did it. But I have to tell you, Nick, you know, no knowledge is ever lost. Um, you know, studying the human body was fascinating. You know, we we uh, did everything the medics did up until uh, four and a half years and dissection. I was fascinated by the way the human body worked, the physiology of it, the, the way our brains worked. And we focused a lot on head and neck anatomy, embryology, <laughs> the way the fetus forms. This is science is fascinating. Yeah. And I, I think deep down, I am a scientist. Um, I love the scientific approach. I love a data-driven approach. And it set me up to understand neuroscience, which I use quite a bit in, in the work that I do. 
So, so dentistry might have been as, as an actual career choice, not the best fit for me, but in terms of, of, of the knowledge that I gained, understanding uh, medicine and, and the human body and physiology, I think it's a science-based education for me is critical uh, in, in, in the way I've looked at problems and studied problems. So being a dentist was amazing in the first few years when uh, I had to lease equipment at 22.5%. This was the time of the Asian crisis, 1997. Wow. Uh, and fresh out of varsity without a jot of knowledge on how businesses worked. Uh, because my dad was a doctor and doctors are the worst business role models you will ever have. <laughs> it's, I mean, it is, it's, an in, it's an incredibly interesting thing how many of my guests I've spoken to who didn't gain formal business knowledge and regret that. And I'm, I'm one of them. I studied journalism, politics and philosophy with zero business knowledge and I became yeah. an entrepreneur and beat my head against the wall learning it. Tough so, lessons. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah. It is tough lessons. Sorry, yeah. carry I mean, on. I didn't know I didn't know how interest rates really worked and here I s started up this three-roomed practice in Polokwane because I married and lived up there that was my, my first marriage I didn't uh, what I'm very proud of is I didn't take loans from anyone uh, banks were very willing to lend to dentists and doctors and I got because you're reliable <laughs> reliable not entrepreneurs but dentists and doctors yeah. <laughs> and you made it through six years of school you're generally going to you know type a you are going to push but but I can tell you that the lessons learned from taking out loans on German and Swiss equipment at the tender age of 23 and a half um, th th that's that school of knocks works quickly and yeah. I remember being absolutely driven to reduce that capital amount. Anytime I collected any sort of money, boom, it would go straight in to re reduce the capital. And there was no better sense of gratification and feeling of achievement than seeing that balance come down because compound interest is your enemy. <laughs> If you're if you're on the paying side of things, in fact, yeah. at, at at yes, we have given all of our youth a smartphone, and the smartphone holds zero-rated apps. Vodacom have zero-rated the yes apps for us, so we're able to train youth, and we've built a wow. world-class behavioural program. And this behavioural program uses a lot of elements from neuroscience on how people remember how people learn um, the, the behavioral tricks around uh, you know Kahneman's thinking fast and thinking slow and we've built in a, in a 22 module curriculum we have quite a few modules on business literacy and um, and personal financial management and one of the that's amazing one of one of the, one of our heuristics or rules of thumb that we know people learn by is that debt is a robber Debt, uh, with debt brilliant. you steal from yourself. <laughs> so we have, brilliant. because that's what people will remember. Debt is a robber, debt you're stealing from yourself. And of course, these these lessons are gathered over your life. And and I, I, I want young people starting out to understand this. Um, and so we built it in. And this is this is what I say is no knowledge is ever lost. Your experiences, your your, your methods of attacking a problem have all come from these experiences. So even though I wasn't meant to be a dentist because you, you're working alone, it's, a, it's an exceptionally solitary job. Um, 
And I remember I took to singing. We'd have the radio on and while I was working, I would sing. And one day my nurse took me aside and she said, Doc, the patients have asked that you please stop singing. <laughs> it's like, that well, is fantastic. I'm giving this up. <laughs> I can't sing while I do this. Um, no, I'm kidding. But I mean, the, the, the story oh. was true. I, I really was taken aside. It was an intervention from the staff oh, to fantastic. save my practice. <laughs> a little bruise to the singing ego there. I built, I built a really big practice. I was, wow. I was actually okay, what period? So, so you left um, studying, then you opened your own practice, and then how long did you run it for? 1997 till 2003. Wow, okay. Yeah, and in 2003, I didn't fully shut it. I transferred. I had someone, believe it or not, I had two people in my class who qualified from Polokwane. Um, and uh, so I transferred my practice to them. And I started studying uh, in, my, in my last year in practice. I started studying, but I also continued to do a bit of locum work while I continued to study. And th that, that practice, I was told, was the biggest practice in the north. Um, wow. I, I really built a huge practice in a short space of time. And I focused a lot on pediatric and family dentistry. And I also did quite a bit of surgery. There was another big lesson uh, for me in, in, in that practice. I worked exceptionally long hours. I um, had my first child while I, was, while I was in practice. But what it takes to really build a business, you know, there's no half measures. You know this, you're an entrepreneur. And whether it's a, you know, a dental practice or a, or a startup in the tech industry, wherever it is, there is no business that you can't throw yourself, that will work if you don't throw yourself into it. So I really threw myself in. I had to pay off this equipment and I paid it off quite, quite quickly and well. And, and the, the, the practice became successful. But one of my, my hard lessons was when I was pregnant with my second child in my first trimester, I would move chair to chair because to make a dental practice successful, you've got to, you've got to really do volumes. And, um, I was doing surgery and I loved surgery. It was one of my favorite things. And oral surgery is quite finickety. You can imagine you're working in very small spaces. And I cut myself without realizing it. And my nurse said, you know, doc, you've cut your glove. And I washed my hands and re-gloved. And that evening drawing my daughter's bath, realized I'd actually cut into my skin. It was a surgical cut, which meant I was, I was ex really exposed. So I, I called, went back to the practice at night, called the patient up, and I said, please meet me tomorrow morning for a blood test. She was a lovely woman. Um, meet me for a blood test. I'm pregnant, and I've got to do an HIV test on you. And it turned out she was positive. Oh, and, shit. you know, this was, this was like a real moment for me. I, I, was, I was young. It was my first baby, and I had to go on antiretrovirals. I'd just been on a conference. Uh, actually, an HIV conference, believe it or not. Well, that was one of the big topics. And we had South Africans were global specialists. And I phoned up the professor who, who and I said, look, the, the chances are 0.01%. Do I go on antiretrovirals? I'm pregnant. And she said, you must, because if you are the 0.01%, it's 100% for you. <laughs> so stay wow, on the phone yeah. with me. There's a new drug that's out. Um, I will speak to the pharmacist and you start taking it instantly. Um, and, 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 you know, these, these moments shape you. They build mm. an empathy also. That's, yeah. 
that that you understand those moments for so many millions of people when something like this that's life-changing happens um and mm. i mean everything was fine you know i think it's very much par for the course that doctors um have to go on courses of antiretrovirals during their their lives but in those moments um you know what is going on in the heads of so many people who've been in this situation so that was the dental chapter learned lots yeah, about I do. life I want to jump business back all the way back to you starting your practice i'm interested in we don't you don't have to go into too much detail but mm -hmm. what made you start your own practice versus joining someone else's practice like what were you thinking at that time you know the strange thing is that i i i couldn't imagine working in anyone else's practice my friend who was up there um was was also going to have to set up a practice my understanding of the landscape it was polokwane petersburg in those days racially still quite divided the established practices were 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 white and my sense was there wasn't really anybody that was working with a quality practice to service uh, other racial groups and so it didn't it 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 was never seemed possible to join one of the white practices back in in 1997 um and it really was the only way that i could see myself setting up the kind of business that i wanted the kind of practice that would service people in the way that i wanted uh, you know a, a classy place that mm. changed the way you thought about dentists and and what they did one thing you do understand very early on because at at uh, dental school you start seeing patients nobody wants to be there nobody wants to be at a nobody wants to visit a dentist too true. and I, i thought i could change that you know so so my my chair my first chair that i bought was yellow it was a bright yellow cheerful chair and that. i painted my walls in pale yellows and blues um you know so when people walked in it didn't feel like the sterile tough environment i wanted to change that experience um when i said i built a big pediatric practice i wanted to start with kids when they were young so they would never have traumatic visits later in life because they would build good habits around oral care they say as soon as Amazing. you touch a tooth it never it's never the same again um and so i actually wanted to build a preventive practice initially uh which is a difficult thing to do in in Polokwane because generally you know any primary healthcare is not particularly well developed um and and that has to change i'm sad to say even at this point you know many years into democracy we haven't seen a shift uh in in the way communities look after themselves um so it would have been nice if at this point i could say well that's not necessary anymore at the time it was very important yeah. to try to build that cool that was a great answer thank you i'm interested in that feeling of starting your own practice and you can move on from the practice into the next thing if you want but um have you ever been held back from starting something by a kind of fear or anything that's prevented you from doing the thing you wanted to do and that that answer comes from someone who has never suffered from that i i've always just oh i want to do this cool i'll do that I've always felt entitled and enabled. I had like you said uh, your parents, I had a Greek mother who literally believes that when I wake up the sun shines. So it's been a very simple thing for me to just start. So have you ever been held back by a fear? Strangely in business? No. In business I'm 
I'm driven by curiosity and interest and could I make this work and how would I make it work? I'm a, I'm a lot more interested in how I would make this work than the thought of this being something new or starting a business. Okay. It's the, it's the technical stuff that I get very sort of caught up in. And the other stuff just happens by the by. Strangely, in my personal life, I mean, I stayed in my marriage, my first marriage, long after its expiry date. And so, so that's part of my personality was difficult to move on from. Um, but in business, I've, I mean, you know, you, you're foolish if you, there isn't a little bit of fear. It means you're really not thinking. When I, so going into practice, I knew that was what I had to start. I, I love starting things. I love the, the, the energy that goes with making something work. But, but leaving my practice to move into business school and change career, that's, that took a little bit of thinking. Um, I was lucky, you know, I, I found my dad up one day and I said, I, I need to change careers. I can't, I can't save the world. I know it sounds very grand, but, um, uh, you know, one patient at a time. And I feel as though my brain is, is, I had started doing a whole lot of UNISA courses. So classicals just for non-degree purposes. Uh, and it was such an eclectic range, uh, development studies, classical civilization, quantitative analysis, financial maths. I mean, I just threw it all in the pot. Uh, English 101, I always wanted to do English. What a stunning course Eunice had on power, money, and and greed. Uh, They also introduced me to the feminist literature in that that course. And, um, and, and, And I said to my dad, I need to expand my brain. I need more connections, teamwork. I don't want to work in the solitary space. Uh, you know, I had paid off my practice. I was now making money. It had become humdrum. And, uh, and, and so he said, listen, I was, lis- I was on the ra- listening to the radio and there was an advertisement for this business school called Gibbs. They seemed to have a scholarship program on. Why don't you take a look? And uh, I wanted to come back to Joburg. And guess what? I won the scholarship. And one of the one of the things that I had submitted is you had to do a little video explaining. Wow! You know, wait, wait. How? How? What year was this that you had to do a video? This was two thousand and five. That's quite progressive for Gibbs to ask. Yeah. I mean, YouTube was nascent back then, so yes. that's amazing. Yes, you had to submit a video explaining why you wanted to do this. Two thousand and six. Okay. Sorry, it was two thousand and six, um, and. I had had already moved back to Joburg. I was building here. I built a set of clusters. So I've had some construction industry. Uh, It's like you don't like free time. (laughs) Yeah, I've been told. And, And so I go and I do this video. And it's strange, I remembered it because I found the video. We, we did some spring cleaning yesterday and I found this video in a pile of cassettes in a you know, those little those, those CDs that it was on. Yeah. And I, 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 again, I'm a big believer in synchronicity and the universe directs you. I think that's an important thing to put into this. I believe, keep your heart open and listen because you get, if you're on the right track, you get sent the signals. Here I am in, in Joburg, in Thraps, 
which I rarely go to, but I was in Thrupp's, and there's this yeah. young lady handing out lint chocolates. And I, I'm the type of person that starts conversations with people, and we were chatting, and I said, uh, you know, is this your weekend job? And she said, yeah, I'm actually at film school. And I said, wow, you're at film school. I'm really looking for someone to help me shoot a video. <laughs> Amazing. Well, this, this young lady handing out lint chocolates, and she says, really, what do you want to shoot the video? And I said, well, there's a scholarship, and these were the ideas I had around how I could shoot this video. I want to be the president of Africa of the United States of Africa. And and we get together as a collective because we've got this amazing resource called human beings who are young. And we harness, we learn how to harness this. And, and I want to present this video on being this president and this is where the continent goes. And she says, I'm calling up my friends. Let me get home. I'm phoning up all of my friends. And within like two or three hours, she had collected her film school buddies. They all assembled at my house and helped yeah. me set up a podium. <laughs> and there I was at this podium talking like I was the president of Africa. And I was talking as though Amazing. we'd reached a point where Africa had gotten its act together. And how we'd gotten to that point, what we'd done to get ourselves to that point by working together, by harnessing the power of youth. Already at that time, I was thinking about harnessing the power of young people to transform the economy and all the things we got right. And um, that, that I think, was one. They loved, they loved the video. And that was one of the things that got me into the, the scholarship, Amazing. which is quite a substantial scholarship to win. Because, you know, MBAs don't come cheap. Uh, but but yeah. what it was was confirmation for me that I was doing the right thing, that the universe was saying, you're on the right path and we're going to help you along here. Uh, and so I did the MBA at Gibbs. And that leap, I have to say, from, you know, I was absolutely terrified of being the idiot in the room with all these people who'd come from business. Uh, you know, I, I can tell you a very embarrassing story is I didn't know how to use Excel. Um, because in, in I mean, why would you as a dentist, right? Like, why would I as a journalist? It took me forever to get to grips with Excel. I mean, now I love it. I now it's like I, th I think things have changed. I think in the in in those days, I'm not sure how old you are, Nick. Yeah. How old are you? I'm 36. <laughs> okay, I, I, I've got like a <laughs> I've got a few years on you. <laughs> okay, a few years. You said 36, eh? Yeah. Hey? Yes, 36. 36. It's a lovely age to be. Um, they say you're Thank finally you. an adult at 36, by the way. That's how I feel. Yeah, that's how I feel. <laughs> I feel like I'm finally an adult. I don't care about anything. Uh, a coach once told me that. Uh, no, you'll finally feel like you're an adult at 36. So, um, so this MBA for me was such an eye-opener. All these pieces of things um, that I hadn't understood seemed to be falling into place. Because I was curious yeah. about the economy and why things worked the way they did and why inequality arrived in the way that it did. And um, I mean, you know, I was so fascinated with it. I ended up marrying my economics lecturer. <laughs> ah, brilliant. He just seemed to understand the world in a way that, that made so much sense to me and was was mm. was really giving me a a sense of the mechanics of of the universe and the planet. Uh, 
And these mechanics work really badly. <laughs> We've set up such a crap system. Um, and, you, you know, th this idea of behavioral economics and how irrational we are, uh, it's amazing how we do things as human beings um, that just are nonsensical. And I think part of what drives me in work is, is can we do this better? Uh, I, I always talk about this case study that was published in Time magazine. You remember back when we all read Time magazine? And it was... A, yeah, magazines, one of those. <laughs> yeah, and Time, you know, and, and it was um, a case study on a, on a firm called Semex. I don't know if you know the firm. It's a big uh, cement multinational. And they had these very big cycles in their, in their P&Ls because construction works in cycles. So it was boom and bust, boom and bust. And they said, you know, if we can target low-income communities and their building needs, maybe what we can create is some kind of more foundational revenue stream and the big cycles can go on top of that. So we can try to flatten it out a little bit with, mm. with that revenue. And so they went and they thought, well, let's learn from Unilever. Let's miniaturize our cement bags, because Hindustan Unilever had been hugely successful in miniaturizing shampoos and even toothpaste. Everything, yeah. sachet. And they thought, well, yeah. well, why don't we try smaller bags? And they burnt their fingers badly. Because in, in Latin America, in Mexico, if you bought a big bag of cement, you were going to do big building. It was a machismo thing. And so the wow. little bags were an absolute marketing disaster. And when they burnt their fingers, very Latin, very dramatic, they, they, this company signed a declaration of ignorance. We know nothing. And they signed it to, but it's, it's really symbolic, right? It's a really good thing. Yeah. It's a good practice to say, I admit no knowledge. I'm actually writing it down to, 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 to make it very understandable and real. That's what I am. And we are going to work to understand. And so they sent their people to work and live in communities and understand that actually it wasn't about cement buying. It was about home building. If they could get the process of home building right with a community, the cement would sell itself. And, oh. and they built this model, which was um, getting architects to work with families to help them plan the house module by module, financial planners to help the family save to build module by module. Social like a home in a box. Home in a box, but social workers to keep the family together wow. because it was so stressful to build a home. Um, Mexicans liked to party and they would have these special 16-year-old parties for when their kids came out. And they helped people to work past all of these cultural and social ways in which they were blowing money and helped them to save. And guess what? They started selling cement. Of course, they got the business model right about where the cement was kept, freezing prices. Mm. But by helping people with the social stuff, with the whole process of home building, which is stressful, the cement just sold. In fact, they were so successful at building homes that the Mexican government started to say, for every peso that you put into Patrimonio Hoy, that was the name of the program, wow. Patrimonio Hoy, yeah. we, will, we will match it because it was such a successful vehicle to build houses. And wow. this company continued to innovate over the years on working with low-income communities. And this was like this revelation for me. It was like, here we are. Here's how we can take these business principles and understanding of the economy and this, this, the, the IP and skills and resources sitting in, 
in, in, in multinationals and use them to deliver a, a, a better lives for people at community level. And that stimulated my, my fascination with innovation, with business model design. And of course, uh, Nick Benedel, who is the dean of the school, um, I, I got a distinction for my, my master's dissertation on mergers and acquisitions in developing countries, which was a very macroeconomic uh, paper, but they asked me to stay on and work on an EU, uh, European Union project, which was a 3.2 million project in 2009. It ran for three years and they asked me after my MBA to stay and work on that. And then Nick offered me a faculty position at Gibbs. And I said to him, I'll take it on condition you allow me to, to build um, a unit that will look at inclusive business that will really take it up as a part of the school and we help our companies to understand how they can do good and do well. And this was very early in the days of what the, the Prahalad work around what he called base of the pyramid, which was a slightly patronizing term. So we, we, we started talking more about inclusive business and inclusive markets. And that's, so I started teaching innovation at the business school. I, I had a deep dive into the world of global innovation networks in this three-year EU project. We worked with 12 countries. You know, Gibbs has done some pretty cool stuff. Yeah, <laughs> we, worked wow. with, we worked with 12 countries on, on a study. It was the, all the BRICS countries, and then there were um, six or seven Euro EU countries. And we did surveys. We did case studies on firms across the world, understanding how ideas connected. Wow. And this was long before a lot of the network, uh, uh, you know, the deep network theory platform work was coming out is with Professor Barnard. She was the lead um, at Gibbs on this and, and understanding how firms connected with knowledge networks around the world and how that gained, how that allowed them to gain competitive advantage. Really fascinating stuff around north-south power dynamics. Um, reputation institutions and how all of those fed those knowledge networks. And uh, that was my time at Gibbs lecturing and, and, and building this inclusive business uh, unit at the school. We called it initially the Base of Pyramid Hub and then it became the Inclusive Markets Program, IMP, <laughs> the IMP program. <laughs> and and, and that's, that's where my consulting work started because I would only be able to, you know, the business school obviously can't get deeply into business model design with companies. You've yeah. got to sort of draw a line. Um, we had a woman called Ita Taliat that built this incredible space at Gibbs called an innovation lab. And she built it with textures and things you could build and pile together. And I started working with companies in that space to come up to do, we started doing design thinking, journey mapping, customer journey mapping. I was taking groups of executives into township communities and getting them to understand the rhythm and dynamics of how those communities operated so that they could rethink the way their products and, and services were delivered to these communities and, and, and build empathy-based models, empathy-based business models. Because a lot, of, a lot of the marketing that was happening, uh, a lot of the thinking that was happening was, was very ivory tower. It was very arm's length and, uh, you know, let's, let's, let's make it cool with jazzy music and, and, and that means it's, it's for this market. And the, the work there was fascinating because for the first time 
we were also seeing executives who were white starting to understand. So sometimes I was taking people into a township for the first time in their lives in the country. Wow. Um, you know, we did a lot of work with multinationals. So we were also taking international people into our communities. And you drive from Santon, you know, past the, the Lamborghini dealerships. And you're on that road to Dipslut. I did a lot of work in Dipslut, Tembisa and Alex. And you 45 minutes out of their hotel in Santon. And they're in another world. And the eyes were like this size, you know. Holy smokes. Start is to this... lock the doors. <laughs> well, we would go in taxis. So I would insist ah, that okay. we had the proper South African experience. And we yeah. would get taxis with seatbelts because we had to sign <laughs> lots of, lots of uh, uh, um, paperwork, insurance paperwork before we'd be allowed. I mean, honestly, you'd have to jump through hoops yeah. to be able to get these executives to come out to the market. But the, the experience was profoundly... Um, life-changing for many people. One of the guys I sat with, I won't tell you the insurance company, it was, you know, insurance companies and chemical companies are just inherently uh, very risk averse. So it took a lot to be able to get these executives out. And the guy sitting next to me was like three times my size. And he sat next to me and he said, the last time I was in a township, I was sitting on a Casper. Oof. Wow. So... You know, we needed a lot of that in those days. And so yeah. there were these moments where I would understand this country I was living in, and I would not only see it from the lens of people who were growing up in shacks in townships, but also from these executives who really had no sense of what our country was. And it was that mm. bridging work. It was innovation work in business model design, but it was also cultural bridging that was going on at Gibbs at the time. And so I started doing this in my consulting work because a lot of the companies wanted you to do more, not just stop at helping them do some journey mapping and design thinking, but to say, help us actually craft these value propositions. Mm. And, and so I used that innovation lab to, to work with companies on talk, having conversations across whatever divides they were in helping them understand their business very differently. When I took multi-choice out, for example, and we visited shacks, mothers were saying to us, we put this TV on because it's where our kids learn English. Um, other mothers were saying, we put the TV on because it's safer inside than it is outside. <laughs> You know, a uh, multi-choice executive must have been like, we just thought we were making entertaining TV. Yeah, our sports channel and, you know, people want to watch the soccer, or whatever it was. There were there were um, there were unemployed people. I mean, shacks have got satellite dishes. I mean, OK, it's now, you know, uh, 2020. This work happened many years ago. But even at that time, shacks with unemployed people had, had satellite dishes. And you ask them, how are you making the money to pay this, you know, this 20 rand connection fee, uh, whether it was a week or, or, or month? And they were like, no, like information is power. People understood the, the importance yeah. of information, that they'd been disconnected. And here was their first chance to become connected to opportunity and know what was going on. So these were the types of, of, of research that started to, to appear. And I went deeper and deeper into consulting work 
to help companies design these business models. And so eventually I started reducing my work at Gibbs and expanding the work I did in inclusive business for companies. And we did this around the world. We did it for Unilever, for their MDs for Western Europe in, in the UK. So the methodology of immersion, taking it and working with companies around the world. And it's through that inclusive business work that I met Stephen Kosseff. Uh, I was on panels with him, with Praveen Gordon, and started to get pulled into the more political designs, uh, design arena around inclusive business. And that is when Stephen uh, approached me, Stephen and Colin Coleman, um, to, to take on the CEO role at YES. But I mean, what, what I hope I'm expressing is there was never a single piece of knowledge that wasn't used. Everything that I had done in my career seemed to be feeding into what I needed to build into the strategy of YES. The behavioral economics, the neuroscience, the economics at Gibbs, the understanding of how low-income markets worked and what what people on the ground were feeling, working with young people. All of that came together uh, in, in designing and building the YES strategy. All the amazing people I'd met uh, over the years with deep, deep knowledge that, you know, humbles you. Um, I was able to pull their thinking and connect it all into this, this YES machine. That we've built. So I've recently discovered through researching this book that I'm writing the phrase expert generalists and you you are exactly that. And I think I, I've heard Tim Ferriss say this before, uh, the most interesting people are the ones who smash together the unexpected. And under that guise, there is no wasted knowledge yeah. because your dentistry helps you learn something that ties into everything down the road. And I think it's an important thing for people to understand that there is nothing that's wasted, even failure. I'm big on failure. I love failure. I think it's an imperative. Um, and when you fail, you've only failed if you haven't learned anything. Yeah. And that's yeah. such a key thing that I think most people miss. But I want to jump back to your, you, you kind of glanced over it. And I think it's a bigger thing than maybe you even realize. You were, I'll say bored for lack of a better word, at your practice because it was working. So on your own steam, you just started to take random UNISA courses. And I think that that's an interesting observation that most people don't do. When most people are bored, they embrace the boredom. They go through the mundanity of life. And I'm interested in that feeling. I don't know if you remember that feeling when you thought, I have to seek knowledge. Where can I find it? Because back then, it's not like it is today, which will be my next question to this, where there is no excuse today. Today, if you want to learn anything, you have a device that has more access to internet and, and information than ever before in the history of the world. But when you were at UNISA, that wasn't the case. You had to go to a university course and pay to do these things on your own just because you were interested. So I'm curious about that feeling that you were like, I need this knowledge. Like, talk me through that shift to, okay, I've got this working dentistry. I'm bored. Let me go find something else. Yeah. I mean, these are, these are difficult things to, to name. There, there are sense. That's why I ask. <laughs> there, there are <laughs> sense of I'm missing out. I think I have, I have FOMO on knowledge. Like I need uh, to understand and know. I, I knew that, that. Um, 
that you're grounding. You know, the way our education system works is you go straight from school, deep dive into very specialist knowledge. And, and I really felt that I wouldn't be able to be a good citizen of the planet if I didn't round my knowledge off. Like I needed to know more to be a better human being. <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to name it, but no, you know, sometimes that, that's you, a great explanation. Yeah. I just, I, I knew deep down that I, I had to do this. I had to, I had to learn about these areas that I'd not been given a chance to. I did also have a sense of missing out that, you know, because I went into dentistry and I didn't take up the, because I had actually signed up for a lot of the courses that I wanted to do before the dental um, notice came through that I'd been accepted. And I, I was, I always had the sense of, oh my goodness, I was almost there. I was registered for those courses and then I changed track and it was, how do I catch up now? How do I play catch up on all these knowledge bits that I'm missing? But the MBA really helped me fill many of those. And it's still, you know, I know it gets a lot of flack these days, but but if you have come from a specialist discipline, um, there is no better way to give yourself a very, you know, especially if you've got great lecturers who come from spaces with diverse backgrounds, for them to, to give you um, this overview, this generalist overview of the mechanics in so many areas, marketing and economics, it really, it really is a beautiful way to fill those knowledge gaps, but you're absolutely right. I mean, I've just gone online to Ogilvy and Gibbs and at, at Gibbs, I've, I've, I've registered for a class on um, digital strategies because I think yes can get better and better at that. And I've made my marketing team also sign up for it. And, and on Ogilvy, I've gone into a behavioral economics course. So, you know, we've, we've got this amazing access uh, and, and, yeah. and these courses are not a lot of money, you know, they're 1,800 and 3,000 uh, respectively. So, so absolutely, I think if you have a hunger, but I must say, Nick, there's, there's a different hunger that, that also comes as you expand and, and you start to deliver on some of the, the things you'd hoped you'd do. There's also a, a, a knowledge seeking for balance and calm. And so some of my knowledge seeking is also going into spaces uh, around meditation and mindfulness and how I can, because it's also, there is an imbalance in constantly striving, you know, and reaching a point yeah. where, where you also say, what is that balance I need to achieve? So I'm very impressed with your notification in your email inbox to say, you're expecting Thanks. a response from me right now, but <laughs> I might be thinking, I might be yeah. doing some of my balancing right now, um, and yeah. and that's that's a that's a journey also to to try to gain knowledge in and and a practice around disciplining yourself. I'm so glad you brought that up because especially with younger entrepreneurs, I'm trying to I've coined this concept that I suffered from called the sacrifice fallacy and your incredible husband and I discussed this ad nauseum on our podcast because he and I have got very similar stories. I, when I was building companies in my twenties, suffered from a stomach ulcer that hospitalized me from kidney stones twice, from insomnia that was constant, from stress-induced hair loss. And that's not even a joke. I had a full head of hair with a ponytail and wow. through all of my stress, I lost friends, family, jobs, business. So I'm trying to make people aware of this thing that I'm calling the sacrifice fallacy. 
that you have to sacrifice your mental and physical health to build something. And I think it's a very difficult thing to talk about because people like you and I are obsessively committed to these, these ambitious goals that we have, but that comes at the loss of something. So I'm very glad that you've said that your research has also taken you to these interesting places that I'm also, I've, I've basically stopped reading business books because I've got enough of those. I'm now reading science fiction and meditation and books on psychedelics and all these interesting things that help add to my stacking of skills rather than dive deeply into a single thing. So yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that. I mean, out of interest, how do you manage your mental and physical health? Yeah, I mean, I was going to suggest to you that your your next project should should actually be to build one build a course, um, maybe with with Adrian and I on 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 thinking about how you say no, how you achieve that balance. I think there are a lot of people uh, like yeah. you and I and Adrian that are that are seeking that. Uh, although I'm having to push Adrian in it, he's he's just an he, you know, I don't think he's at that point where he understands he needs the balance, but but we really do. And there's technique to it. Yeah. It's really hard. I mean, I, I'm just telling you in, in the same mouthful that I've gone and, and, and registered for Stockfit's course and this behavioral course, like with my with my life, you know, should yeah, I when, be registering for that? two courses, you know, at, at the same time? Yeah. So this this idea of achieving that balance of being brave enough to put a response like you have on your email inbox. I'm not brave enough to do that. This is hard and stuff. You know, it's worth it's worth me actually just telling the listeners because most of my listeners have never emailed me. Um, over the last six months, I looked at my life and what I wanted out of my day. And I realized that email was not my job. And it was becoming my job because every time I send an email, I get three back. So I took the leap to put a, a permanent out of office on my email, telling people that I'm probably not gonna mail them within the week. I'm working or reading or thinking or doing something that contributes to my work. And email does not do that. And I, I've lost a lot of clients because they don't like that they're not top of my priority list. Mm -hmm. And so be it, they're not the kind of clients I wanna work with. Um, but you're right, it was this, like this awkward, scary, I mean, how, what, what is the world when you're scared to put an out of office on your email? Yeah. That means I've done something wrong with my life. If I'm nervous to tell people, please don't talk to me for now. Yeah. Um, so that's what you're talking about. Yeah. And and also what, what impresses us. I mean, I remember, uh, you know, the thing is every time you make these transitions. So when I, when I transitioned out of, uh, out of Gibbs into my company, which I started called Boundless World, which is how, what I, where I met Stephen Kossip through, who's by the way, been one of the most amazing mentors and believers in the power of women in the workplace. Um, I, I moved into this business boundless world, started it up because I wanted to actively build these models with companies. And it went into digital literacy and how I would deliver these low income models via digital platforms, connecting small businesses to big companies um, through this. And the first was how do we have a common language around what business means and delivering education. And these were all of the things I was grappling with in my company. Now, when you're working like this and you've got an academic career and you're starting a company and you're working for, for, for big companies and actually building something, I would be working incredible hours. And I remember uh, it was one in the morning, one thirty in the morning, and I was punching emails through and the house is quiet. You know how quiet the house is at that point in time. And I sent emails off and guess what? 
in that quiet, I actually startled because I got a response. Someone pinged me back at that hour and I was so impressed. I was like, wow, someone's responding at this hour. And you know, that is not something to be impressed about. This is a person yeah. who's losing sleep and they're not going to be functional the next day. And I, you know, this, 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 the sleep research book that I've also, um, the, the author is going to escape me now, but it's called why we sleep and the damage that we do to ourselves, um, by not sleeping, you know, so, yeah. so this is the kind of stuff we've got to be sharing with, with other driven people like ourselves who, who might not understand water. the damage that we're doing. And in the longer term, you've got so much more to give if, yeah. if you're able to balance yourself. So this quest, I'm still on it. I'm not in any way saying that yeah. uh, <laughs> that that I've that I've nailed it. Sometimes yeah. I'm working a lot. Sometimes I'm not. Um, yeah. But I think being conscious of it is the key. So Tasha, this particular question, I think you might school me on. So you've got a lot more insights on the hard facts about this. I like to tell people, no matter what your background, no matter what your age. I'm not willing to take excuses anymore if you don't start something and take control of your life because you have access to information, you have data that is more affordable than it ever was, YouTube can teach you anything in the world. But knowing what you know about youth and unemployment, is that true? Am I being too hardlined on this? So to, to stay connected with with, um, with with young people on my on my smartphone i have a whole lot of whatsapp groups of youth that we interact with in in various i mean yes has got youth groups all over the country we've done over 37 and a half thousand jobs now it's about 1.7 billion going back into youth wallets through through salaries and what i try to do is if i'm at our timbisa hub i try to connect with um young people on 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 my phone and i've got a little group with our students straight off the street in Temisa. We did do some psychometric profiling to get them into a digital course. And they are super digital savvy because they've been on this course with IT Varsity for the past six months and learned enormous amounts. So they they are now knowledged <laughs> on, on how mm. to build apps, how to set up websites. They're digitally literate fully. I've been sending them uh, opportunities to uh, tap into Fiverr, Upwork, um, yeah. you know, some of these transcripting services, because these, these, these young people have absolutely no job opportunities to be able to yeah. get into. I mean, the situation is dire in our country. We just haven't built an economy that lets people with lower skills levels in. We yeah, are I think only, also just to yeah. interrupt you for our international listeners, I think it's imperative to explain that the projections are that by the end of this year, we're looking at a 50% unemployment rate in our country. Yes. And that is, that's significant. That's 25 million people, 20 million people. Yes. Uh, in a, I, I in a population of 55 million. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's just horrific. And I think it's hard to even express those, those numbers or telephone numbers when you think about actual unemployed people in the, in the many millions of people. Sorry, so that was just... No, I mean, absolutely, for international listeners, I mean, you know, we I've been looking at unemployment rates around the world and people are bouncing back after COVID. It's a very quick re-entry into their jobs. Yes. You know, it's um, for them, 5% unemployment is high. So it's inconceivable that we yeah. have half of our working age population that are not going to be in jobs. Yeah. And it's even higher for young people. And redefine youth yeah. 
between the ages of 18 and, and 35. Um, there's some data that, that was in an article in The Economist that the average age for a young person in South Africa with a matric, a secondary school graduation certificate, the average age for first job is 30. Oh, no, that is so, unbelievable. So, so it, it's, it's, a, it, it's one of our biggest national priorities is to try to get young people into work. Yeah. And through the YES program, we work with companies on demand creation. We've got an amendment to the codes of good practice, um, which is an affirmative action scorecard that if companies invest in youth jobs, they can move one or two levels on this on the scorecard. So it's oh. yes, it's a business. There's an actual value proposition for companies if they invest in youth jobs. And we've been able to do um, 37 and a half thousand, which equates to over 1.7 billion going back into youth wallets. Now, when I connect with these youth around the country and I send them links and things to say, try this, try that. This is after they've done the YES course. And in this case, with the Tembisa youth, it's a slightly different model because they come to our hubs, which are infrastructure in communities that act as a reservoir for knowledge, for small business support. It gives them the infrastructure to be able to climb that. Guess what? And a long road to get to your answer. No laptop. The hardware is really expensive. And you need reasonable quality hardware if you want to get into digital work. Mm. Um, the data is expensive. I mean, if you, you, Nick, would be very aware of the cost of data in South Africa compared yeah. to, to global. We're in the top 10 so in the world this most is expensive data. Most expensive. And this is why one of our priorities for YES was negotiating for months with Vodacom to zero rate our apps. But there's, so at least the YES training could be uh, freely available, and we could have a two-way push-pull, uh, push and pull of data with our youth. But you know, there's only so much you can put on a zero-rated um, platform before yeah. you're going to get a phone call to say, uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> you can't I've get half the country's data going. I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so this idea of this idea of 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 youth being disconnected, this digital divide is very real. And it's real because of the economic situation that young people find themselves in. So the technologies might be there. We might also have learned how to really present the information well, which is which is getting half of it right. I don't think things like Coursera um, uh, are, are, are meant for some of our youth. Uh, you know, they're, all for mobile phones. Yeah, all for mobile phones. And, you know, a lot of those courses are also people who are educated, who can't necessarily get to a university to do it. Um, mm. We need pr information presented in very digestible format when you're looking at yeah. less literate individuals. And, and But we're starting to learn to get that right as well. That's part of the access, uh, access mm. formula. Um, but I don't think that we have in any way created the infrastructure and access for young people to tap into the wonders of what virtual work could do for them because they've got the creativity. My marketing person mm. uses the word, she says they, they're native on digital. You know, mm. if you give them the tools and some of the foundational building blocks, young people will take to this stuff very quickly. And I've seen it, we've seen it. We've seen the innovation, the creativity, but if we don't give them the foundational building blocks on how this works and the access, um, we may as well not have it. 
Amazing. Jeez, what a tough road to climb, right? So my, my final question before I ask you to tell people where they can find you is, what do you wish that someone had told you when you were just starting out? That it's okay to fail, but not just to tell me, to really, to really make me believe it. I think so much of my, you said I could swear, so much of my Please. fucked upness, can I call it that? Yeah. <laughs> is anxiety around failure, around perfection. I'm driven by perfection. And I drive the people around me mad because of my strive for perfection. These are difficult things to change about your makeup. You know, and, and the problem is I'm doing it to my kids. <laughs> I'm trying not to, but... Hey, every know, generation I'm... it softens, so don't be too hard on yourself. Yeah, I think that that is, uh, that is that's the one. The two. The, the other thing is mm. where you start is not where you have to end. That's, you know, that's a, that's a big one. And we do, we say that to our youth because we tell them it doesn't matter what that first job is. Don't think you're going to be CEO or earn the big paycheck right up front. If you get an opportunity to learn something in an industry, Thank use you. it as a stepping stone. Where you start is not where you have to end. Where you end is up to you. You're the master of that ship. Uh, yeah. And and so, you know, my transitions, and I've had some big transitions in my life, I think would have been a lot easier if we make acceptable that your life is a journey and you must take 100%. those dives. You must, if, if something feels right and it feels like this is where you will really be able to thrive and fulfill your potential or find your balance, um, you must take those leaps. It's okay. And they leave. You have basically summed up my journey from leaving school to where I am today. I am a serial job hopper. I've never maintained a job for more than a year and I've followed wherever I thought I could learn the most. And most of the older people look down on me for that because, you know, where's your career? What are you mm -hmm. building? Mm -hmm. What's the longevity yeah. here? And, and sometimes things take advice. time. They just take time. I can tell you, I started yeah. my PhD in 2012 I haven't finished it. I'm, I've now just, I've now got this, some mental space to say, and I'm doing it on youth employment. Um, so I feel like it's going to have real relevance in South Africa today. And, and so even though some journeys will take you a longer time, stick with it. <laughs> I just want to point out, you've, you've just told me you've got some mental space to finish your PhD from eight years ago, but you've signed up to two online courses. <laughs> Yeah, just making an observation. Use it, don't use it. So in closing, firstly, thank you so much for your time. But tell my listeners and viewers where they can find you, where they can follow you, and where they can support Yes. So I am on Twitter. Uh, Tashmia I is my, is my Twitter handle. We have a Yes website. If you have any sort of privilege to give a young person uh, a job for a year, even at minimum wage, that's 3600 a month, come to our website yesforyouth.co.za and it's the numerical four in yes for youth um, we would love to help you to get a young person into the world of work it's transformative and you will be an absolute superhero to that young person that you transfer those skills to uh, and and that's me twitter and uh, linkedin tashmia ismail you can find me uh, as ceo of yes for youth Amazing. Tash, thank you so much for your time. This has been a fascinating conversation and I've learned a ton. I'm sure my listeners have too. 
Thank you for listening to The Curious Cult Show. I am your host, Nick Haralambis. You can find me at nickharalambis.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on all major podcasting platforms. This podcast was edited by Becky Layton and hosted by yours truly. 